encouragementexperts.com. And what's your name again? Wes Staffenbaugh. Amen. Are we ready? This has been, you can sense the impartation and the presence of the Lord. Ready, Ben? Hallelujah. All right, well, I thought I'd start this session and sing one more song. And uh, uh, this song uh, I wrote one time when I told the Lord, I can't keep it together anymore. I'm, I'm falling. I can't keep it together. But if you could keep me, I still want to be kept. And I realized I used to think Peter was a jerk because he said, I'll go with you, Lord. I'll die with you. And but then he denied Jesus. And uh, Jesus had to keep him. He said, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I found out I'm no different than Peter, and neither are you. Uh, Jesus has to keep us or we would not be kept. And the Bible says he's able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before his throne with great joy. He's able to keep us, but our business is to want to be kept. So that's what this song's about. Go ahead and start number three. It's called He's Keeping Me. come to realize I cannot keep myself Try as I may I'd fall away when tempted and tried Like Peter intended to I promise that I'd stay we both have failed, but Jesus prevailed. He's keeping me. He's keeping me to be His very own. He will present me with great joy, blameless before His he intercedes for me So my faith will not fail I seek His face For by His grace He's keeping me When I can't keep myself I just can't hang on When life's too tough Road is too rough And I'm falling down I cry out, oh Jesus Lord Please keep me by your strong word He speaks again his love takes me in, He's keeping me. Oh, how I need you, Lord, how I depend on you. It's my desire to live in the fire of your holiness. With all of my heart, 
I sing Lord, please keep me all the way Till we can touch I love you so much For keeping me He's keeping me Present me with great joy, blameless before his throne. He intercedes for me, so my faith will not fail. I seek his face, for by his grace he's keeping me. I seek his face, for by his grace, he's keeping me. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Well, uh, I want to give you kind of an overview of uh, some of the rest of the, the book. That I'm writing and ask you to pray for me. So uh, I'm going to show you a lot of pictures. I'm, some of them I'll comment more uh, to explain them. But let's go ahead. Uh, so the book begins with um, me telling you how to. And if, if my technical man, I don't know if you can make those pictures any bigger, but uh, if you can, go ahead. Uh, anyway, Jesus talked about the man who had such a big crop that he said, he was a rich man, and he said, I can't get it all in my barns, so I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And that night, God said, you fool, uh, your soul is required of you, and who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus said, that's the way God is going to treat anybody uh, who is not rich towards God. And so, as I start the book on spiritual leadership, I tell people that uh, that man was a leader, but he wasn't rich towards God. He led a crew. He had a vision. He communicated his vision. He had order. He had organization, right? He had a lot of things, and he was a success in the eyes of the world, but he wasn't rich towards God. Now, no matter uh, if you read a leadership book, and there's nothing in it about how to be more intimate with God, you know that you're reading a secularized leadership book, and you say, do they have any value? Well, if you need to know how to build big crops and fill barns, and <laughs> amen? Sure, there's some natural wisdom in all that stuff, amen? And uh, so a lot of people have been helped by leadership books, and they learn things. But just learning techniques of leadership doesn't mean that you're getting rich towards God. So you have to, uh, uh, success books are typically uh, how to build barns and build bigger barns. Amen. The success books of this world. They're all about getting rich, getting famous, building barns, filling your barns, build bigger barns. Amen. But I want to, uh, uh, the spiritual leadership then is a journey in becoming rich towards God. And once you understand that, then when you read the leadership books, if there's nothing in there about intimacy with the Holy Spirit, right? Nothing in there that helps you know God better, 
then you know what you're reading. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just you've got to know that it's not spiritual leadership. It's secularized, and therefore you need to be aware of that. Now, uh, remember the the man, uh, <laughs> the rich man. Jesus said, "You fool." <laughs> So uh, in the final drawings, it's going to say by Mr. Fool instead of Mr. Stupid. Mr. Stupid sounds a little snotty, but you don't want to be snotty. But anyway, the Barns of Success, uh, that's uh, many times, that's the kind of books that are being fed to our pastors, training them to be leaders. But in the spirit, when they're not being taught how to be rich towards God, they're being taught how to build their barns, their religious barns, fill their religious barns, build bigger religious barns. And what looks good in the eyes of the world may look completely different in the eyes of God. All right, now, uh, a chandelier that's unplugged would still glisten in the sunlight. And so many ministries and many personalities are like a chandelier, and they are charming. They're reflecting the good times. And so their ministries look very prosperous and very impressive in the good times. But if you were in the church and the sunlight was hitting a chandelier, you could say, my, my, isn't that impressive? Look at how that shines and glistens. But then in the darkness, it would be irrelevant. Now, when prosperous times, we look like we're prospering in America because we're spending over a trillion dollars a year in borrowed money. So naturally, that's going to look like things are pretty good. But eventually, you know, the cycles of life, there's prosperous times, there's hard times, there's abundance, then there's famine. But when things are really hard, the the shiny chandelier ministries won't have the power of God. And then we want to be sure that we don't become like a chandelier in our personality because we can glitter with showmanship. A lot of people act like they're good preachers, see, but I, I, I see the emptiness. Uh, showmanship doesn't impress me. I mean, you can, get to, you can be cute and you can get the crowd with you and you can raise your voice and you can do all these things and that has nothing to do with truth, has nothing to do with anointing. It's showmanship. It's the glistening of the chandelier personality, see? But it doesn't mean it's plugged into the power. Now, a little light bulb, a little lamp that doesn't even have a lampshade but it's plugged in... It doesn't look glorious, doesn't look impressive like the chandelier, but in the darkness, oh, then you can see the light of that little lamp for a mile. And you don't even see the lamp. You only see the light. Now, we ought to just say to ourselves, then, we want to be the kind of people who are plugged in to, to God in prayer, in love, in dependency, amen, so that his light shines through us. And then people see the light. We don't get the glory. They see the light. Amen? So, amen. Now, and when I preach about the motives of Christ, some of the pictures aren't in here because I'm saving some for tomorrow morning. My chapter on prayer, 
along with some of the teaching on motivation. But one time a man had a vision. I was praying for people to be filled with the motive of Jesus to bring glory to the Father. And he saw this picture where they were being covered with a sticky substance that looked like Elmer's glue. And he said, what's that stuff you're putting on the people that looks like Elmer's glue? And God said, that's the heart motives of Jesus. When I send my angels with the spiritual gifts, those gifts will stick to that motivation. But if that motivation dries up, the gifts will fall off. And so... I spend quite a bit of time in the book uh, describing Jesus' passion to bring glory to the Father and how we need to get filled with that heart motive. And that's something you don't find in most leadership books. Almost never any mention of the motive, but the motive is supreme. If we do something from a wrong motive... Our prayers don't get answered. You ask and you don't receive because you ask us wrong motives. And then if you give and you fast and you pray with the wrong motive, you get no heavenly reward. And yet, purity of heart motivation is not mentioned in almost all leadership training books. It's the key to the anointing. It's the key to the power of God. Amen? And so what any of you could say was, Lord, I would love to bring you glory. I would love to be filled with that motivation. How can I bring you glory? And that becomes your driving, motivating thought for life. And that controls everything we do, everything we don't do, what we watch, what we don't watch, what we read, what we don't read, what we eat, what we don't eat. Do it all for the glory of God. Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Now, Vision is very necessary for leaders, of course. But your vision needs to be a God-given vision. And that's the difference between secular leadership. Secular leadership is going to tell you, get a vision, present it to the people, get the people to follow your vision. But spiritual leadership says God has a vision for you. And the Bible says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. So the vision of Jesus was from the very heart of the Father, And similarly, God created each of you for a special purpose, and God will set that vision before you, and when he does, it's a fuzzy picture. Now, God told the Apostle Paul, Jesus appeared to him and said, as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. So he knows that he's going to go to Rome. That's a fuzzy picture. But he doesn't have all the steps. And so, similarly, God... uh, has called me to do different things, and you'll get a general fuzzy picture vision, and then what you want to be aware of is filling in the steps by yourself. (laughs) As you get the general direction, don't rush ahead and fill in the blanks, but rather ask God to reveal the next step. Because you see, Paul on his way to Rome was going to run into a hurricane or a nor'easter, sweeping down from the island of Crete that would uh, cause the ship to be wrecked on the island of Malta, and uh, those people would all get saved, and then there'd be a massive healing revival, and then from there, he would go to Rome, see? So, yeah, there's uh, God's filling in the blanks, amen? Now, I've, uh, I've had uh, times in my ministry where I'd have a vision from God, and then I'd make it bigger than it actually was and uh, many times make it unachievable because it would be too big. And uh, so I would just caution you, God has a vision for each of you. Uh, Don't 
run fast, filling in the blanks, and don't try to make it bigger than what God gives you. God can always enlarge it himself, amen? But if you make it too big, then you'll, you'll fail, of course, in doing it, and you'll only achieve little parts of it. All right, now, uh, vision has to be about the people. So here we have a football coach, and these are pencil drawings. When the book is done, they'll be in ink, and they'll look a lot sharper. But uh, the first coach is saying, my vision is to be the world's greatest coach. Me, me, me. See? And the other coach is looking at his players and saying, I see you as champions. You, you, you. Now, when I uh, began a pastor of church, I wanted the church to be a model church in the center of America that people could come in from all over America and see how we were winning the city and so that the nation would be saved. So when I'd talk to my church people, I'd, it was almost as if I said, my vision is over your heads, it's over there. It's this national thing. And uh, so people would say, Wes is not a pastor, he's an evangelist, and that would frustrate me. But uh, one day I was out on a prayer walk, and I said, Lord, what's the greatest thing I'll ever achieve? What will be my greatest achievement? Will it be a... And I named off a radio program, a church I started, money we'd given to missions, a, a book that was going, a little booklet that was going around the world in different languages. And, and God spoke to me and said, it'll probably be someone you encourage who will do greater things than you will ever do. And so if I could find a place where my vision changed, my vision changed to becoming the people right in front of me instead of my vision is over your heads. And so Paul said, we, we, we labor and we work with all God's energy to present every man perfect in Christ. See, and he said, I, I, I want you to give to my ministry, not so I get money, but so that fruit will accrue to your account. Everything Paul did was, my vision is you. My vision is you. And so over the years, I've changed. And we don't have a big crowd here today, but you realize, most of you, I greeted you personally when you came in. And I'm, I, I believe in you. Amen? And I, I, I'm not saying, oh, God, uh, I don't see any great leaders here. Well, this is a wash. You know, instead I'm saying, uh, I got some wonderful people here, and they can catch this, and they can humble themselves, and God can pour out his spirit on them, and they can lead many to righteousness, and, and my vision is you, you see? Does that make sense? I could say, folks, uh, I have a great vision. I've written this leadership book. I want it to impress the nation and turn the whole tide and bring the church back to spiritual leadership and see my vision is over your head. Well, that would be me, me, me. Now, we have to be careful in the, in the body of Christ uh, that whatever our vision is, it's for the people because we can use the people to achieve the vision and that's what King Solomon did. King Solomon, they, they came to him uh, after, his, uh, after he died. They came to Rehoboam, his son. They said, your father laid a heavy yoke on us. Lighten your yoke and we'll serve you. And so uh, King Solomon uh, was a man of vision. But in Ecclesiastics, he said, I built the buildings for me. He actually says that. I had the vineyards for myself. I had the uh, men and women servants for myself. I did this for myself. Did for my, everything was for me. 
And he said, it's all empty. It's all vain. And so the people down below have great burdens, and, and one of them is saying, uh, we're helping the king fulfill his vision. And this one says, but he doesn't care about us. And so whatever our vision is, and we have to have visions to raise money and books and buildings and whatever it is, but it, we need to filter it all through God's love for the individual. Amen? So that we say, well, the building is going to help them bring uh, their families and their people, and they're my vision, not the building. Amen? That the people are my vision. We'll use the building to achieve the vision. Amen? Not use the people to get the building. Does that make sense? All right. So in the same way, everything that I produce and stuff at... at you have to be my vision, amen. And uh, that's uh, a purity of vision is something that a spiritual leader has, whereas a, a carnal leader will be a man or woman of vision, but they'll use people to attain the vision rather than the people being the vision. Okay? Now, I want to talk about order and disorder. Order moves the border. And Divine order is first things first. So Jesus said, first seek the kingdom of God. That's divine order. And uh, his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. <clears throat> now, he said, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. That means your heart and your mind. And if you'll clean up your internal problems, God will help you clean up all your external problems. That's the order of faith. That's one of the great faith concepts. I have a book called Faith Concepts, and that's one of them. Uh, faith has an order. And so the Bible says, finish your outdoor work, and after that, build your house. Finish outdoor work, plant your crops. So if you were a pioneer, you moved in, you'd, you'd want to sleep on the ground while you planted your crop. Now, while your crop is growing, you want to build your house. But if you build your house first, it'll be too late to plant your crop. It won't mature, and winter will come, and you'll have a house, but you'll starve. See, so order moves the border. And every day in your life, God has an order for what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. And the Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, what that means is an umpire in baseball says, that's out of bounds, that's in bounds, that's a fair ball, that's a foul ball. And the umpire says, that's a strike, that's a ball, you know. And so in the same way, the peace of God, when you're out of divine order and you're spending too much time in one priority area of life, the peace will lift and that's the rule of the Holy Spirit saying uh, you need to be uh, shifting over to a different priority area here. Amen? So if we're not spending enough time with God, we're out of order. If we're not paying good attention to our health, uh, we're out of order. And uh, I'll say more about, uh, well, let me tell you right now that uh, God is your number one priority. Number two priority is your health because if you're dead, you can't serve anybody. And I consider that the most misplaced priority of all. And uh, so this month, uh, this last month, I've been taking a lot of time. I've had some doctor's appointments. I'm going to have to lose some weight. I'm going to have to improve my diet. And uh, I'm 69. And somebody said, how long are you going to live? I said, I'm going to live to 140. I'm, not, I'm just getting started. Amen. <laughs> so that has to be pretty intentional. <clears throat> and then I'll have to, uh, have, to have divine order, right? Uh, all right. Now, order moves the border. But um, <clears throat> then there's organization. Now, order 
is first things first. Organization is everything in its place, every person with their responsibility, every event in its time. And they're both very important. Secularized leadership books will spend a great deal of time on organization and almost nothing on divine order. That'd be a good place to say amen. See, they won't tell you, first seek the kingdom of God. They won't be mentioned. First clean the inside of the cup and dish. Get your heart right, then God will turn your external problems into blessings and miracles. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth, and your barns will be filled with overflowing, your vats will overflow with new wine. Finish your outdoor work and build your house. Divine order. But organization is every event in its time, everything in its place, every person with their responsibility. Now, the devil's kingdom is highly organized but has no divine order. It's totally out of order because God's not first. Come on. But the devil's kingdom is very, very organized. All the little demons have their own responsibility, right? All right, so we need both. But secular leadership only emphasizes this. Now, you can learn a tremendous amount that will help your life from organization. All right? So I read books like Getting Things Done. David Allen, he's a, an efficiency expert. He'll tell you how to run a filing cabinet, um, how to have a labeler, and what to do with every sheet of paper. And <laughs> That's good stuff. Amen? Uh, and uh, so we need that. But, uh, but two different things. Now, uh, obstacles. Here you have... Uh, divine order, you'd get tall in the spirit. You'd really be communicating with God. But if you don't have any organization, then you're not having much outreach. You can't, uh, you're not organized enough to get much done. But you're spiritual. <laughs> now then, we should, should, say, uh, should say, instead of object, it should say obstacles. My artist misspelled the word there. But you see, here's a church that's uh, very organized. That's the big mega church, very organized, but maybe not spiritual. No divine order. Well, what do, what do we look like in the spirit? Now, God would like us to move the boundary of your life because, you see, many people are stuck. Come on. Many people are stuck, and the border's not moving, but order moves the border, and organization moves the border. Now, divine order moves the border this way, and then organization moves it horizontally. Right? So learn whatever you can about both. Now, one time I was walking, and I said, Lord, I want to build a great big ministry. How do I build a great big ministry? And God spoke to me and said, when I build, Jesus spoke to me. He said, when I build a whale... I use a great big skeleton to hang the weight on. But when I build a jellyfish, I don't use any skeleton at all. What are you building? I said, dear Lord, I'm building the world's biggest jellyfish. Now, you see, I was pioneering a church, and I was doing everything. I was a pioneer pastor, so I was a song leader. I was the usher. I was the janitor, right? And so I was building a jellyfish ministry. Now, he showed me if you want to build a whale of a ministry, you've got to line up responsible people like vertebrae and delegate responsibility to them, hang some weight of responsibility on them so you can grow. 
Now, that's why you people here, you could be vertebrae. You don't have to be the head of the church, but you could be a vertebrae, and the pastor could lay some responsibility on you, and you could bear that faithfully. And the more vertebrae that the pastor gets lined up, the ministry can become a fish, <laughs> maybe a whale, <laughs> Right? I, we never became a whale, but we did get to be a large fish, I think. I got at least a fish. It was We weren't a jolly fish. So that's just, uh, even a child can understand that. But you see, uh, Moses was trying to have a jellyfish ministry when he was the only judge. And what moved the border? Organization. And when he went to the mountain, talks to God face to face and gets the whole system for forgiveness in the Old Testament. That's divine order. But appointing the judges, that's organization. All right, so we highly respect both. And uh, a lot of times I'll go into a church and uh, I can just lift search. I don't, I, I don't see any burned out light bulbs, but typically I'll go into a church, there'll be burned out light bulbs. And what does that mean? There'll be cobwebs, there'll be peeling paint, there'll be things that are not done. And I, I say to myself right away, uh, somebody's missing their responsibility. See, the pastor's trying to do everything. He can't get it all done. We've got a jellyfish here, right? But then you can go into other places where, sure, there's paper towels in the bathroom. All the light bulbs changed, but there's no altar call. There's no power. So we, we desperately need both. Amen. Okay. Now, uh, the devil... How does he want you to handle stress? I I learned this I, seven years as an associate. Then I traveled for a year and a half as an evangelist my first time out. And uh, I would sign up bus kids all day long and then preach at night. And I'd drag my wife around with me and my little daughter. And we'd be in at a church attic or a attic and uh, maybe we'd be in somebody's bedroom, and uh, my wife was very private, so that was hard on her. And one day we were in a camp trailer on a gravel lot, a little small camp trailer, and the kids were coming in looking in the window. And we were in Mount Shasta, California, and my wife just blew up and told me how much she hated this life that I was giving her. And, and I went walking down the railroad tracks at Mount Shasta out into the forest, and uh, I just felt like this horse that had all these boxes up on its back, and I felt like my back was going to break. And the biggest box was my wife up at the top. And I said, God, I could take all this pressure if it just wasn't for my wife. Now, the devil began to tell me how to handle the stress. And if this drawing was a little clearer, the first way the uh, devil said was, buck all the boxes off, get a divorce, drop out of the ministry. You'll get out from under all this pressure. And I resisted that, so then the devil said, why don't you jump off a cliff? Why don't you just end it all? And you'll be out from under pressure. And I rejected that. So then the devil said, well, then you're just going to have to be tough and bear the load. He knew that I would collapse under the load. And so the three ways the devil wants you to handle stress are to buck it all off or jump off a cliff or collapse under the load. But God began to speak to me. And uh, the first thing he said to me was identify the boxes. I took a yellow pad. I filled out the entire thing of things, that entire page of things that had me under pressure. And then he said, now selectively unload some of the boxes. 
And I had a printing press I was buying that was a great big huge payment, a commercial printing press in my garage. And I had a guy that would print tracts and booklets for me for free. But I decided I'm going to circle that. I'm going to, get a, I'm going to let it go back to the printing company. I'm going to get out from under the pressure of that financial payment. I circled the traveling ministry. I said, well, my wife and I have this little child. It's too hard. I need to have a home. And uh, I'm going to have to pastor church for a while or something. I circled that. I couldn't just unload it right away. But I began to identify what I could unload to change that pressure. And then God said, now restack the boxes. I said, what's wrong with the way I got them stacked? He basically uh, beamed into me, you got them stacked all wrong. See, you got the big box on top. It should be on the bottom. Now, notice the horse, if the little box on the bottom, uh, that's going to really cut into the back of the horse. But if, if it was in the right order, the same load would feel much different. Now, this isn't the same load. Some of the boxes have been unloaded, but now it's in the right order. See? So that's when he began to teach me that God is your first priority. You've got to spend time with God. And your next time, next priority is your wife. You've got to spend... No, next is priority is your health. Because I was working 87 hours a week, typically. 84 to 87 hours I could taste death in my mouth. I was just in my early 30s. I was working myself to death. I'd sleep a few hours a night. My nose was swelling shut, constantly chronic rhinitis from all the stress. And uh, I wasn't on my own priority. And you've got to spend time and money on your health. You've got to intensely maintain your health. If you're dead, you can't serve anybody. All right? And uh, so then the Lord told me, now your wife is party number three, and your child is party number four, and then there'll be your work, and then the brethren that you serve, and then the lost. And I said, I can't believe you're telling me to put the lost last. And God uh, showed me, I didn't, uh, I didn't tell you to number down, I want you to number up. And they'll be the focus of your uh, priorities but uh, I'll go with you to win the lost. Your body will go with you to win the lost. Your family will go with you to win the lost. Amen? You'll win more than ever as opposed to the way you're doing it. You're going to burn out. <laughs> Does that make sense? So I have the picture of the pyramid of priorities is in this little book, The Heart God Hears. And, uh, but anyway, this is, you see, this is order. I'm talking about order, not organization. Organization is where he says, you're going to build a whale of a ministry or a jellyfish. Well, if you're going to build a whale of a ministry, you've got to line up people, delegate authority to them, hang the weight of responsibility on them. But now divine order is how much time do you spend with God, how much time do you spend on your health, how much time do you spend with your wife. And that's where the peace of God has to clue you in because this is, you can't regiment it. And you say, every day I spend an hour with God, every day I spend an hour with my health. Some days you might spend the whole day with God. Other days you might be filled with doctor appointments. Uh, some day you might have to spend the whole day with one child that's having a crisis. Right? Some day there will be a ministry day that just takes everything in your, and, you, and it's God's will for you to uh, spend that entire day. Amen? And so how do you know how to shift from one priority to the other? You have to... Follow the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. So ask God to give you a tender heart. Be sensitive. And the Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. That's from Colossians. But it's a critical verse to understand how to be in divine order. 
is that today you say, Lord, I'd like this to be a beautiful day. I'd like you to be pleased with it. So I sure do want to do your will. Help me be sensitive to the inner leading of your Holy Spirit, how you'd like me to spend my time. Amen? You say a good amen to that? All right. And then the Lord told me, now edify the horse. After you've uh, identified the boxes, selectively unload, restack the boxes, then he said, now edify the horse. <laughs> I'm the horse. <laughs> i got to bear the load. Amen? And... Uh, uh, so it's very important. I, I, I take vitamin pills and fish oil. and uh, The number one health principle is to avoid negative emotions. A heart at peace gives life to the body. I'm just I'm reading a new book that I bought on my way here, but it's saying how, how your genes have on and off switches that can turn on to cancer, turn off to cancer, and uh, turn on to this disease or off to that disease, and uh, you can inherit it from your uh, relatives, but if God has it turned off, it won't harm you. But negative emotions turn those bad genes on. All right, so you want to edify yourself with good books, mentally, uh, Bible time with God, some exercise, good diet, educate yourself what's good diet. People know how to put good oil in their pickup truck, but put the junk food in their body. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, the chapter on love is uh, where Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. So, just real quickly, I'm going to tell you, one time I said, Lord, I don't want to just know you. I want to love you. Teach me to love you. And he said five things. He spoke to me, and I would meditate on one, then he'd speak another sentence, and then a little later, another sentence. But he said, love me like Mary that sat at my feet. And I meditated on that, and I thought that would mean if I love the Word of God, I'll be sitting at the feet like uh Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words. So as we love the word of God, we're loving God. Then he said, love me like John who leaned on my breast. John put his head over on the Lord's chest and said, who is it, Lord? And he whispered, it's the one to whom I give the bread after I've dipped it in the dish. And uh, if we spend time to God in prayer, it's as if we're putting our ear over the heart of Jesus and so I, I realized that he was called, love me by spending time with me in prayer. Draw close to me. Put, put your head on my chest, so to speak. And then he said, love me like the good Samaritan. And I knew that meant that if we love hurting and suffering people, remember he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. So that shows special love to him. Then he said, love me like the woman who anointed my feet. And then he said, love me like Abraham who always obeyed me. And that needed no explanation, but I went back to the one. I said, Lord, how do I love you like the woman who anointed your feet? And he said, my pastors are the feet of the body of Christ. They carry the weight of responsibility for the church. And like the feet, they take the most abuse. Pour your love on pastors. Now that's a five-point plan of how to love God. Love me like... Mary, who sat at my feet, Martha's sister Mary. Love me like John, who leaned on my breast. Love me like the Good Samaritan. Love me 
like the woman who anointed my feet, love me like Abraham who always obeyed me. Now, one time I was delivering bus flyers, and uh, a thought came to me, you aren't doing anything. You're not filling stadiums. You're not pulling people out of wheelchairs. I was starting to feel bad, and the, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, there's nothing more spiritual than love. Amen? So anyway, there's a lot in the chapter, a uh, uh, lot more on on love. But whenever I hear, you know, that story, I have a song where I sing about it. Uh, one time I, I said, what do you want to hear us say to you in worship more than anything else? The Lord said, I want you to promise me that you'll love each other. <laughs> there was no song like that. So I wrote a song like that a year later. And I try to make it my theme song, but it goes, I promise you, Lord, that I will obey the words of your mouth. I'll do what you say. I'll love the brethren just as if they were you. I'll cover their flaws with my loving prayer. I'll show them each day how much I care. I'll love the brethren just as if they were you. Open my eyes so I can see Jesus and the person standing next to me. Keep me from ever having to say, when did I miss seeing you in that needy way? Fill up my heart with love that's so true that when it's expressed, it brings pleasure to you. I'll love the brethren just as if they were you. Now, a series of uh, drawings in the book when I talk about the power needs to come back to the church. The power has gone out of most of the American churches. Most are powerless. And so the smartphone is the dumb phone because somebody says, I took out the SIM card. And the car has no power because this guy says, I took out the engine. And then the devil says, I took out the power. And here you have the church, no threat fellowship. (laughs) It's it's unplugged from prayer and anointing. And I have a lot to say about that, but I'm just kind of giving you an overview here. We have to give God an opportunity to display his power every time we have church. So that's why we want to say now, if anybody needs prayer for anything, you call them up. And we have to have a prayer team because uh, uh, he, he said in the last days there will be people who have a form of godliness but deny his power. And the Lord showed me that it, his power is denied so not so often verbally but by denying him any opportunity to display it. And so we have to, we want churches where we're saying, God, display your power. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus. Amen? The prayer of the early church that God so graciously granted. Now, the church, for the most part, has taken out conviction. And I explained that conviction is the power of pulling people into the heart of God. But so many churches take out conviction because if you see, if you're, if you're, lukewarm and you're living in sin, then conviction makes you uncomfortable. It either pulls you to God or you flee from it. And so in order to keep the crowds coming, a lot of pastors and spiritual leaders take out conviction because they don't want to lose anybody. But then nobody's brought close to God. You can't bring people close to God without conviction. So the Bible says our gospel came to you not only with power but with great conviction. Now, conviction is not condemnation. And the church has been so... This is a generality, but a generality in general, the church mixes up the two and thinks that condemnation and conviction are the same, but they're not. Condemnation is a push 
away from God. It's the devil pushing people in the puddle of shame, grinding their feet in the gravel of shame. See, but conviction is, come here, honey, you're going the wrong way. Get back up on my lap. Amen? Now, we need to have conviction in our sermons. Amen? Right? So that we're pulling people to God. Now, I have a chapter of what spiritual leaders don't do. And the Bible says, uh, in a large house are articles not only of wood and clay, but uh, of gold and silver, but of wood and clay. Some are vessels of honor, some are vessels of dishonor. If a man cleanses himself from the dishonorable things, he'll be a vessel of honor, made holy to the master, useful to do any good work. All right? Well, you determine whether you're a toilet bowl for the devil or a pitcher for the Holy Spirit by what you put into your life. And so I can tell you that as a spiritual leader, I don't listen to any secular music. I don't go to casinos, I don't gamble, I don't buy lottery tickets, and I have a, a, most Christians don't even understand why gambling is wrong. But gambling is basically the sin of covetousness. So you covet somebody else's stuff, and you rejoice when you win, and you don't have any concern for their loss, and that hardens your heart. So the more people gamble, the more hard their heart becomes. Yeah, God's a, no, there's not an equal exchange like in a sale. They get a product, you get the money, or vice versa. In gambling, nine lose, one wins. And the casino always wins a percentage. But then when you rejoice over your winnings, and the Bible says ill-gotten gain takes away the life of those who get it. I believe it's ill-gotten gain. I believe the Bible says the uh, uh, blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow to it. But I believe that a curse of God is on gambling winnings, and that you're worse off when you win than if you lose. So that's, I don't know what kind of uh, trouble thou stir up by putting that in a book because uh, I think the body of Christ is desperately ignorant when it comes to stuff like that. But spiritual leaders shouldn't be gambling. I talk about not drinking, not using marijuana, just simple stuff. And yet so many people are trying to see how close they can get to the world, uh, back away from the world. Amen. I don't need alcohol. Uh, and stuff like that. All right, so that would mean you keep yourself pure. You don't just watch a bunch of filthy stuff, amen? Don't, don't be a vessel of honor. Don't be a toilet bowl for the devil. You choose, amen? All right, uh, and so we don't want to put the bad stuff in. Put the good stuff in. Now, another thing we don't do is we, the, the way we handle rejection. The Lord showed me that, uh, that uh, rejection you see, if you're a spiritual leader, you're going to suffer rejection. Jesus was a man of sorrows, rejected, right? The nation rejected him. The world rejects him. Some accept him. But when you're a leader, the better you are, the more rejection you're going to get. And they honor the false prophets, but they kill the true prophets. Come on. And so that's, uh, what are you going to do with rejection? So the Lord showed me rejection won't hurt you. It's just a knife, a big dagger laid down in front of you. But it'll hurt you if you pick it up and stab yourself and say, what's wrong with me? And so when I'd preach things that had conviction, I'd preach holiness, I'd preach the Word of God, people would leave the church. Some, for a few weeks, they'd say, you're the best preacher we've ever heard. Then pretty soon they leave. You're not feeding us, they'd say. What? 
You said I was the best preacher ever. Now you say, I'm not feeding you. Well, I'm not feeding you what you want to hear, right? You want to hear carnal stuff. I'm not feeding that to you. So they reject you. Now then, for a while, I said, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why do people leave my church? Finally, the Lord showed me, uh, say, what's wrong with them? And then you're not a good person because they love you. You're a good person because you love them. And he taught me to say to myself, they'll never escape my love. I'll always love them. I'll always pray for them. Therefore, I'm a good person because I love them. If you don't learn how to handle rejection, you will never be a great spiritual leader because you are going to be rejected. If you do the right thing, you say the right thing, live the right way, and you have convicting sermons, then you're going to pull disciples. Jesus didn't say go build a crowd. He said go make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. See? Now, then when we're just building crowds, we're not making disciples who obey. We're having a great big crowd of lukewarm people that are just coming for the loaves and fishes. Now, the devil will grade your report card if you let him, and you must never let the devil grade your report card. He's going to grade you down until you feel so discouraged you want to give up. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. Only your teacher has the right to grade your report card, not the janitor, not the bus driver, amen, not the guy walking down the street. And see, I tell people in every congregation, at least one-third of the people are depressed because they're letting the devil grade their report card. That's a generality, but I've been in the ministry a long time, and uh, when I actually take the time to say, close your eyes, bow your heads, how many people lift up your head and say, I think I've been letting the devil grade my report card? Approximately one-third of every congregation will raise their hand. But see, you have to learn that if you do that, you're going to become so discouraged, you'll drop out. Or the devil can flatter you and give you all A's when you don't deserve them. All right. Now, here's another picture where I talk about the power of conviction. And the, the man is saying, pull me up. Don't leave me here. But the pastor's saying, uh, we don't believe in strong pulls of the Spirit. Here's a little help. Remember, God loves you just as you are. He throws in a teddy bear and a candy bar. <laughs> and that says sermonette, Bible verse. <laughs> I don't think that depicts a lot of the modern church. You leave people in the well, throw them a teddy bear. No strong pull. Now, faith, I have a chapter on faith, and I have a whole book on faith, so I only have this one drawing, but I, in the success books of this world, they all say the universe wants to help you. So tell the universe what you want, you know, and they replace God with universe. The universe is a friendly universe. It'll help you achieve all your dreams. So I just tell people in the book, you know, the universe is violent, and if God wasn't controlling it, it would kill us all real quick. Ain't going to get any help from the universe. You're going to get help from God or demons, spiritual forces. Amen? And if you're doing evil, the devil will help you do evil. If you're doing good, God will help you do good. But put your faith in God and don't ever give his glory to the universe. Now, there's a lot more to be said on faith, but we'll just sum it up here. Then finally, I end with a chapter on virtues. There's, can you blow that picture up as big as you can get it? Um, the Bible says to pursue godliness. Paul told uh, Timothy, I believe, and uh, then he said to the Philippians, uh, think about these things. If anything is virtuous, right, 
Think about virtues. Then Paul said, Colossians 3, uh, 12, clothe yourself in compassion, kindness, tenderness, gentleness, uh, and patience and humility. And then uh, make yourselves beautiful. Peter said to the women, uh, don't let your beauty be just the outward of uh, fancy hair and uh, fancy clothes, but with the inner beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. And then uh, train yourself to be godly, Paul taught one of his disciples. And then Peter said, make an all-out effort. Make every effort to add to your faith. And then he listed some virtues. And then Paul said, we commend ourselves in every way in the sight of God and men by virtuous living. And then I list, uh, I believe, 119 virtues that I have found, identified with a little statement of what they'd look like if they're fleshed out in my life. And then you can use that as a shopping guide and just say, Lord, I'd like that virtue. I'd like that virtue. I'd like that. And some people say, just pick four or five virtues, and you know that's your values. And I, I always tell people, we you know, we want to be just like Jesus, not sort of, kind of like Jesus. Amen. So anytime you can define or find any virtue, ask the Lord, and then the Lord will make it the real thing. Because there's false, phony fruit. If you ate a plastic fruit. You say, this fruit, uh, this is fake. I can't eat any of it. Well, that's the fruit of self-help. Say a good amen right there. Self-help can't make you spiritual. It has to be the fruit of the Spirit. Finally, then, we want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what we live for. And then there will be an everlasting ministry. Say, I never want to quit the ministry. I never want to retire. But not only that, when life is over, Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with a few things. Be in charge of many things. And there's a promotion in the Spirit. There's an everlasting ministry. I want an everlasting ministry. I look forward to hearing him say, well done. Then see what he'll give me as a way to serve him through all of eternity. So I hope all of you would love the ministry and say, oh, I want to bring glory to God. I want a sweet spirit. I want to be humble. I want him to help me order my life after his priorities. I want to be organized. I want to get a vision from him, and then I won't run ahead and fill in the blanks, but I'll follow him carefully. I'll make sure that my vision doesn't go over people's heads, but my vision is you. It won't be a selfish vision. And I'll ask God to empower me and fill me with power of the Spirit that strongly pulls people into the heart of God. Amen. So that's, uh, how many of you think that's a pretty good spiritual meal today? <laughs> Amen. Uh, let's uh, close by having you just stand, and I want you to look up towards the Lord, and uh, I want to pray over you today that uh, God will help you mature that you'll lead many to righteousness. And there's many people all over the world. I heard that 42% of the world still does not have a witness for Christ. There's so many Muslim countries and there's uh, Buddhist places and uh, Hindu places. And uh, even if Vermont is very worldly, at least they have some churches where they could come and find Jesus. But in 42% of the world, there's no church. So they're exceedingly lost. And uh, 
there's a lot of work to do. And God can take any of you and take you on missions trips and use you right here. And uh, you can lead many to righteousness. But give yourself over to God and say, Lord, uh, you created me to do good works. You prepared them in advance. I want to give myself over to you and I'll do anything you say. I'll let you uh, take me through any test of humility. Uh, I'll ride that elevator down. I'll die to self. Just uh, make my life count for something. Make my life count for something, Lord. Lift your hands up and worship God right now and cry out to him and say, Lord, I want, I want to lead many to righteousness. I don't have to have a title. I don't have to have respect of people. I don't have to have the praise of men. I just want your praise, and I want to end up hearing you tell me, well done. So I want to give myself over to you, Lord. And I want to love you. I want to show faith to you. Let's do it all together. All right, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you for each person here, that you have created good works in advance for them to do, and that your spirit is the leader. And we want to follow your spirit. We want to follow you. We want to be good followers. Lord, we pray you'll help us be really good followers of the Holy Spirit so that those who follow us won't be led into the ditch, but they would be led into righteousness. Use us for your glory. Pull us by your conviction into your arms, into your closeness. Show us where our lives are out of order. Show us how to be organized and fill us with your vision. Now do exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think or imagine according to your wonderful grace that's at work in our lives. Let's say his name together. In Jesus' name, amen.